Hi, everybody. Um, thank you for coming or tuning in to this BCA uh, chair election podcast. Um, today, uh, I'm interviewing the two candidates for the post, Rostam Namagi and Russell Myers. Um, and we're starting with um, Rostam. I'm going to ask them both pretty much the same questions, most of which have been um, sent in by readers of UK Caving and some in an email to me. So um, with no more ado, um, Rostam, tell me a bit about your sort of involvement with caving and with the BCA over the years. Just tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, I um, uh, got my start in caving through Sheffield University. I uh, went through a few univer- uh, expeditions and got involved in various bits and pieces. Uh, volunteered with Northern Czech, um, which is a training event similar to the national organisation. Um, and then from there on, I went into BCA Youth and Development and was there for six years and, you know, got a fair amount done. And for the last year, I've been in um, BCA um, in uh, publications and information. Um, uh, for other context of other clubs I'm a member of, I'm also a member of the BEC and the Wealdon Cave and Mine Society. Well, uh, and okay, quite a lot. In, in, in on expeditions you, you've been abroad quite a bit I believe yeah I've been very I've been quite lucky I've been to uh, Morocco various other uh, places over Europe you know done the bit deep alpine stuff in France um, and um, spent quite a lot of time in the states Borneo and um, a little bit of time in India as well and I have a passion for surveying which you know at least some of us are uh, keen to do book we, we, we need people with a passion for surveying. Um, yeah. So it's obviously very clear that the BCA has been through a difficult time. I mean, we've had the impact of the pandemic, but we've also had a great deal of instability within the organisation. A lot of people who seemed um, to have a lot to offer have left abruptly, not always in uh, the nicest of circumstances there's been some ill feeling we also sadly lost um uh phil rousel as chair last year shortly after he'd stepped up to take on that role um how do you see your vision for the future of the organization and how do you think you can help to set it on a more secure stable footing in in the months and eventually years to come yeah so it's a tricky question the um there are sort of two ways of approaching this question. One, you can look back at what the cause of the instability is. And you can go, well, we'll try and avoid that. And my opinion of it is really that we had one or two people who really carried the organisation before. And we built our systems to rely on them. We built our bureaucracy around them. In fact, you know, Damien Weir wrote the rule book and it was a good rule book and then people made changes and people didn't really update themselves on all the other rules and unfortunately the rule book doesn't really work if you're not actually using it and you're just using it ad hoc um, and so there are sort of structural elements that have created the instability and those structural elements they kind of pit one group against another an awful lot of the time and they also muddy the waters as to whose remit is whose. Um, and the thing, so if, if you take the IT situation, which was uh, 
pretty disastrous, caused an awful lot of bad blood and caused an awful lot of people to leave the organization. And, you know, I considered my position at that stage because, you know, you saw an awful lot of the people that had come in with really promising ideas and leave and it's, it's just a bit crushing <laughs> and you almost hit the critical mass where everyone goes. Um, but the way we fixed it um, was to sort of create a non-political role that didn't vote, very clear terms of reference, and we rolled all of the um, various little posts that had anything to do with IT just into one group. So it was one group with one overall head who was appointed by council and had a very clear terms of reference. And that way it staves off conflict. <laughs> um, and I think there are an awful lot of things like that that we can tidy up. Uh, I've put a proposal through uh, <laughs> to the AGM to merge um, uh, the, uh, gosh, oh, sorry, I'm drawing a blank here. <laughs> uh, equipment and techniques and training. There we go. Finally got there. Um, and part of that is just, we don't have the volunteers to actually staff an awful lot of these committees. And so you get a couple of um, people who have a particular axe to grind and uh, unfortunately, the axe is going to get let loose uh, in that situation. So that's how I see the, that's the really boring bureaucratic answer. <laughs> um, my view, vision of the organisation in the future, really it's let's deal with COVID. That's the biggest thing. The, you know, our, the majority of our recruitment into our sport still comes through university clubs. <laughs> they are going to be reeling. I've been through this. I've been through a club that was reeling in normal times. Um, I've helped clubs, uh, represented them for unions and, uh, you know, helped them avoid all this health and safety paperwork. And it's all just going to come again. <laughs> As things open up, people are going to review their health and safety and we're going to have to be, be there more than ever. Um, and one of my proudest things in youth and development was starting four new student caving clubs. <laughs> you know, we, we actually increased uh, you know the number from 22 to 26 and so that's that's one of my visions is actually growth <laughs> we should be aiming for growth not not aiming for stability or just treading water picking up on that um a number of people over the last year or two have voiced uh, the observation that that in many ways caving is not a very diverse sport it doesn't reflect the diversity of our society as a whole now, um, you know, I, I do, of course, accept that, that um, university clubs have been the classic route into caving, but especially perhaps given some of those issues that you, you mentioned, and also the fact that most universities don't even have a club. I mean, should the BCA be more proactive in trying to reach out to other organisations or looking at other ways to generate in interest in caving? Because, I mean, sometimes people do express the fear that, you know, as the average age of cold cavers gets older, um, which it does appear to be, you know, it may eventually die off. How, how would, would you go about trying to sort that out? Yeah. <laughs> how, how do we reverse the demographic cliff that's, uh, <laughs> that's heading our way? Uh, that's, that's mainly been the reason I was in youth development. The, so the, there are a couple of good news pieces here. One, in diversity. Uh, so the student clubs that are actually bringing people through, um, we're approaching a ratio um, of female to male of, you know, 
between 60, 40 and 55, 45. Um, and historically it was, you know, <laughs> three to one, four to one, five to one, <laughs> that, that kind of thing. Each decade you go past the, the number gets bigger. And that I think is just society sort of catching up, <laughs> you know, um, that's, that's not us really having done anything, but it's a good sign that the clubs are open to it and that they're changing with the times. Diversity is the key. Um, and it's not about any particular, you know, ethnic diversity or um, whether it's uh, gender or any, any, any other ism, you know, people, people like to focus on that. One of the most important bits of diversity that we kind of forget is actually who's recruiting and which structures are recruiting. And so we've got an awful lot of clubs that rely on university clubs to bring them their new intake. And they're not very well set up and they don't have an awful lot of experience uh, at grabbing people and getting them in. And actually we need to help those clubs keep uh, growing and keep big because ultimately they're the ones that tend to um, maintain huts <laughs> they they maintain uh, winch meets all of those sorts of things and those crucial elements of the caving calendar that you can get kind of get fooled into thinking that they just happen and one day someone's going to turn around and go there's just no appetite on this committee to do this thing and we lose that forever um and so making sure that we don't just have university cavers bringing people in, making sure that we grow scout caving and the national youth caving team, and then also making sure that clubs have roots into caving. And even those adult clubs, which is, uh, we should really should have come up with a better term than that. Um, some adult clubs should be more focused towards families and bringing in children. And then some adult clubs actually should uh, perhaps look at the 18 to 25 year olds the group that the university clubs serve but in areas where there aren't university clubs <laughs> um starting new university clubs is really hard um you need a core of passionate volunteers and you know the bca's done what it can in terms of uh, making at cost kit available and then more often than not just uh, writing off the cost uh, in our surplus and that's the sort of thing that BCA is really good at. You know, we've got money, we've got network and we've got connections, but ultimately it's engaging with the volunteers on the ground that really, really drives change. Um, I'm going to combine two questions here. Um, why do you think you're the right person for the job? And without obviously uh, getting personal here, I mean, why do you think you're better suited to it than, your, than the other candidate? Yeah, I think... I think it's really, what is the job is a hard question. So what I offer for the chair role, I think is quite different. And, you know, we look at the past chairs and actually each one of them has been quite different and it's not necessarily right or wrong, but different people prefer different things. Now, my value <laughs> is I think the only way to overcome the demographic cliff is to... <laughs> Bite it head on and actually aim higher. Don't aim for <laughs> treading water. Aim for actually actually properly swimming and, and beating tide. Um, and I think my strengths really come in 
uh, you know, almost 10 years of grassroots volunteering. <laughs> you know, I've been, I've been at the coalface and I know all the people involved, really. Uh, so in, in terms of the younger scene, admittedly, I've, I've still got some uh, work to do in other places and internationally as well. I think that's an avenue that we've not really explored to the fullest extent. Um, but the other strength I have is in clarity and structure and organisation. <laughs> and it's about shrinking down things that we can shrink down and then networking things and bringing other people in. I think the temptation for BCA is to use the word stability and to go, well, look, BCA worked fantastic in the past. And BCA didn't work fantastic in the past. What happened was that Crow came along. Crow revealed that a lot of the structure of BCA was it had policy written into its constitution it had quite arcane procedures in some respect and it was a consensus organization which required everyone to agree rather than something that was a little bit more democratic and you know having votes and you know if 90 percent think one thing then actually going and doing it yeah all of these things sort of sound normal <laughs> Um, but BCA had to change in response to this because it was alienating a majority of its members. Um, and to say we want to go back kind of goes, well, we've kind of let the genie out of the bottle. We can't go back. Um, you need to make, you need to have a plan for the future that isn't just right. The BCA is just insurance and centralizing money. And we need the only way we can do that is by engaging with volunteers, and I just can't see that happening in any other way. Some people have suggested that um, in the past, and this is kind of related to what you just said, you know, some there have been a, a vocal minority which have managed to impose their will on the majority. How would you stop that happening? Yeah, it's a, it is a good question. And to be fair to an awful lot of those vocal minority, um, it can be useful to have that minority. <laughs> they can highlight problems <laughs> and they can go, well, you know, look, there is an issue here. And I think there's a frustration and you know, people almost bring a view to the table of, oh, I'm not gonna get listened to. And we need to get rid of that. Um, and I think that is going. I think transparency is the key there, is making sure everyone knows who's voting for what, making sure everyone knows what's actually being voted on. And all of those are really simple things that we can do, um, you know, publishing agendas ahead of time, <laughs> um, actually writing out what people are voting on and having people vote on it, put it on the website, that sort of thing. Even, you know, put proposals forward before meetings and so if members actually see, oh, look, this is what the BCA is discussing, maybe I'll actually ask my representative on what went down or maybe I'll actually look out for the report. And so it helps more people be involved. And I think the more people that are involved, 
it kind of dilutes the anger a little bit because <laughs> um, people don't think there's sort of secret deals being going on. So you can kind of you can kind of get that out of the weeds. The real thing that was the problem with BCA wasn't that you know people voted against things because actually once a couple of changes were made, if there was a vote, you know, 90, 10%, that 10% went along with it. They, you know, they were, they were in the tent, they went out of the tent. What became the issue was using bureaucratic trip-ups and the constant delay of votes to the next meeting. And this idea that BCA works quarterly, so, oh, you know, we have four meetings a year and, you know, oh, well, it's not quite ready for this meeting, is it? And actually, you know, we need consultation from our body and I'll go back. But then our next quarterly meeting is a month after this. And, oh, unfortunately, it's going to be at least nine months before we can actually vote on this again. And, oh, that meeting is just before the AGM and that has a particular um, role. <laughs> and so you can see how these things snowball, but it also engenders an awful lot of bad faith and bad, bad blood because people see their thing being pushed down the road and they feel like they're being managed. And <laughs> if there's one thing that cavers hate, it, it, is, it is being managed. And most of the time, the things that are in BCA that cause political fights and things is miscommunication and... <laughs> And it's well bureaucratic incompetence, I guess. Um, <laughs> that's that's uh, that's that's most of it. And then people sort of entrench down. This, this leads me to the next, the next question, which is, you know, how how would you? We, you know, BC has lost a lot of people over the last few years. Um, how would you make the job less onerous, more attractive to people, and therefore, you know, more likely that once people do volunteer to be working with the BCA, that they'll keep going at it. <laughs> Well, I mean, this is this kind of reflects my own um, experience in youth and development. So when I came in, I was just an officer, and I was like, "Well, I can't be the, I can't do youth and development for the whole country. <laughs> that, that just seems seems ridiculous. What is my actual role?" And you know, there's voyage, voyage of self discovery or whatever. Um, but what ended up happening is we turned it into a working group, and the working group effectively allowed me to manage a load of volunteers who didn't really want to go to council. And they had very specific projects and I was running around going, oh, I've heard of this problem or this organization needs this or this organization needs this. And you're sort of the, the point man. You're, you take all the information in, you work out where the problems are, and then you get volunteers to engage with each other. Um, and that people actually really enjoy because <laughs> they're not writing reports that no one reads that go to council. They don't sit through what used to be eight hour and now fortunately a two hour long council meetings where, you know, God forbid, Ogof Drynan gets uh, <laughs> gets discussed and everyone loses the will to live. Um, and it keeps them relevant on the thing that they're good at. And so actually making the working groups work is the key because you will bring in an awful lot more people. Now, once you bring people into those working groups and they see your role and what you do, they're more likely to step up into the other roles in BCA. So, um, you know, it's no coincidence that Will and Josh, you know, both of whom are members of on council now, were volunteers in youth and development. 
and they saw what I was doing and I purposefully, you know, kept them out of council for a while. And actually they came in with other ideas beyond what they were doing in youth and development and saying, actually, well, look, I think BCA could do with this. You know, they, they, they sort of, um, once they get that volunteering bug and once you sort of harden them to the sort of criticism so they see you face, it's, it's not quite so scary, but if you jump into it fresh, my God, I can't believe anyone wouldn't want to resign within six months. And I think that is part of the reason why we had so many serial resignations. If you don't succeed, if you don't win the selection, will, will you stay involved with BCA or will you bow out? So, I, yeah, um, I will bow out um, mainly so that um, Russell would have a clean run at things it wouldn't help to have someone else who's had quite vocal um plans <laughs> and and opposition on uh, something to still be on council i think that wouldn't necessarily be helpful it might feel quite undermining so i i think it probably wouldn't be right for me to be there but i also think that i've sort of run my natural course the disagreements that we've had the um where council has gotten to, I don't think I can offer that much more without taking that next step. And so I'm quite happy with that. <laughs> and if I lose, I don't see the BCA as the be all and end all of cave volunteering. It's just the, it's the hub. <laughs> it's a convenient hub that a lot of people go to. And hopefully we, you know, we can keep it that way. But you think of, you know, I was devastated when Les got the got the chairmanship role because I was frightened what was going to happen to Hidden Earth. That's far more important than a chairman of BCA. Yeah. Ultimately, anyone can kind of do a chairmanship of BCA. Uh, you know, you could so long as it sort of provides insurance and you know doesn't cause too much trouble. I think most cavers would be happy, but I think most cavers would be devastated if we didn't have Hidden Earth. <laughs> and so, my own particular hobby horse, as I mentioned before, is surveying and. There are a few survey projects that you know I really should get around to, <laughs> and I think I would enjoy volunteering in that capacity. Um, moving off from this for a moment, what is, what is it you most enjoy about British caving? Yeah, <laughs> um, I think you've heard me wax lyrical about this before, and uh, maybe I should have put it in my introduction, but. <laughs> A lot of people have heard me um, at caving events and it normally singing incredibly loud. And yeah, I'm that bloke that sings weird, more modern caving songs uh, at every other given opportunity. Um, but that's what I like most about caving is it is a culture. You know, we, you could watch the underground Iger and if you, you know, <laughs> you watch that scene at the Hill Inn and you don't come away saying oh those are my people <laughs> or i understand their approach to life and uh the world <laughs> and exploration and um the fellowship that you find and the society that you find is a really strong society and british caving has something unique about it you know you go to other countries and they aren't as interlinked and they don't have quite as much of the culture because they haven't sort of hit that critical threshold where everyone's talking to each other and you know they don't necessarily have the same sort of regional rivalry 
And I mean, one of the things that strikes me about some countries, America in particular, is that cavers, you know, they're, they're incredibly sort of possessive of what they do. And there are parts of certainly the United States where cavers, you know, don't tell anybody else where the caves are. They don't want anyone else on their turf. And that seems to me very, very different from British caving. Yeah, and I think part of it is from a fear, well, not a fear of the unknown, but an unfamiliarity with it. And so, you know, oh, we know we're safe and we do these things. But actually, they haven't been to caving huts and had other groups stay alongside them and they haven't watched some students get hopelessly drunk or they haven't they haven't done some of some of the other bits and pieces or you know they haven't had that opportunity to talk to someone who goes oh i've got this fantastic trip you, you would love this trip and you know they also haven't well i say they haven't had the opportunity to fight about descenders but they definitely do that's all they do in the states they're even worse than us um do you think that um the uh the BCA should basically take over the UKCaving.com forum and um, rebrand it as the BCA forum. <laughs> um, that one caught me off guard, really. Uh, <laughs> Just I'm a question not, someone asked. Though, yeah, no, no, it's, it's a good question. Um, you don't have to have a view. I think, so, so my viewpoint is kind of similar to dis, uh, our, our position on dissent. So we fund dissent because dissent is a good permanent record and it will, it's cultural, the value of dissent going forward will, is kind of intangible. Mm. And once, I say once dissent goes, it sounds so pessimistic and I don't want that to happen. But I think it's hard to see other people <laughs> coming across and taking it over. But again, I don't have any inside knowledge and I want to stress that. Uh, it descends a wonderful publication and I hope it will continue indefinitely. Um, but UK Caving also has a role. And, you know, a lot of people badmouth UK Caving. One, one of the interesting things is in one of the studies I did about uh, BCA communication um, and surveys, we found that you know, Facebook was actually really quite a powerful tool um, caving huts are a really powerful tool. <laughs> so an awful lot of people pick up news on caving huts, but then pretty much at the same level, it's UKC. And it's not people talking on UKC, it's people reading UKC. And so I wouldn't want to see that go because my fear is if it went, we would either sort of have a couple of subdivisions or people would retreat into their clubs and that sort of shared expertise we'd actually lose. And yeah, so if it pushed over to shelve, I'd have BCA probably buy it, but I don't, I think it runs quite all right. <laughs> I've got two questions yeah. that are more or less related, um, both of which are saying, do you think that the BCA has become too ambitious in what it does? One has used the word bloated. Should it be stripped back um, to a, a more a pared down set of functions or do you think that would be wrong? I, I see a contradiction in the question. <laughs> I don't, it has definitely become, it has definitely become bloated. <laughs> you look at our reports, they are very long. They say very little, you know, you need a good editor to go through that. And I think that would be one of the responsibilities of chair. And I would intend to do that myself. Um, because I think effective communication isn't long communication. 
you know, <laughs> get to the point. And I've probably not done that in this interview, uh, but <laughs> there we go. Um, I do think we need to be more ambitious. Yeah. <laughs> I think we have a lack of ambition because we constantly feel like we can't do anything because we're so bloated. <laughs> do you think that uh, the BCA is primarily, I'm not quite sure what this question means, but this is what it says. Is it primarily a representative body of cavers or primarily a governing body of caving? <laughs> yeah, lots of people love this sort of pedantry and if I'm calling it pedantry, then it's really got to be pedantry. <laughs> you know, Mr. Constitutional Lawyer. Um, I think it, there is a good point in there. Um, what the BCA actually is, it's an anti-governing body. Um, and that's what most of what we do is to try and keep other people from regulating the sport. And if we weren't there, someone else would be and they'd start putting paperwork in. And that would be the end of everything. So in some ways, we are a governing body and we just don't tell anyone um, because our governance is anarchy. And that's a, that I think is a wonderful way to be about <laughs> go about doing things. We have a representative role. I think we overthink the representative role a little bit and, you know, retreat into our tribes. What BCA actually is, is a networking body. It's getting people together and it should what it should be is linking up British caving and helping people actually just do stuff. Um, so um, here's a question about conflict resolution. Um, ha, ha, obviously there have been over the years some, some fairly unpleasant conflicts within British Canadian and within the BCA. You've mentioned Ogilvy Drynan already. Yeah. Um, when there are divisive issues that surface, how would you try to promote mutual respect from people who hold um, differing views and, and do you think you have qualities that would make you well suited to that? So the qualities that make me well suited to that I draw mainly from my job and I'm a doctor and being a doctor you you see people in very distressing situations very frequently with very different values and you have to try and connect with them because ultimately you've got to try and translate a load of Latin and Greek into something that's comprehensible to them without leading them down the road that you've, <laughs> that you think is the best. <laughs> um, and, you know, letting, helping them to make their own decision. And that's all about understanding people. And so I think empathetically, I've actually, I'm quite good at that. I think that that's one of my strengths. The problems in BCA and avoiding conflict, it goes back to those structural things and being very clear about what you vote on and avoiding situations where, you, where people go, well, we voted on this, well, we voted on that. What does this actually mean? Oh, we're going to undo it in the next vote. And you get this sort of careening and it becomes a battle. And actually what you want are fewer battles that are more decisive. And so you have to go to voting ultimately to negotiate these things. But I think setting up the organization with fewer head to heads and competing bodies is ultimately how you take some of the heat out of that. I think, you know, having a code of conduct on council is pretty reasonable. Um, I think 
the sort of complaints procedure that, that Josh was working on would be a step in the right direction. And I think actually showing that council ha has some method of holding people accountable, because ultimately, you know, there have been quite a few recent breaches in the constitution and, you know, you raise them and no one gives, <laughs> no one really cares and if things carry on as they were, we don't actually seem to have the mechanisms to hold various people to account. And I think if they were there and they actually did happen, people would think twice about behaving badly. What importance do you uh, think, or how would you comment on the role of regional councils within the BCA? What, what do you think that relationship should be? Should it be as it is? Should it change? I mean, ultimately, we do everything through the regions. You know, uh, are you going to get a, a team of volunteers like that? <laughs> uh, it would take... <laughs> I, th I guess where I come is, what's the point in breaking things down to just build them back up the same? Like, ultimately, the regional councils are there because having a group of people who talk to landowners and, you know, work out what that particular region needs is really good value. I think what the problem has been is that they see their representative role as really powerful. And I don't know... Um, how we change that to some degree because yeah we want the region's input on things um do we want them to think that they're holding back <laughs> or that their they their constituency is you know so big it's a really difficult question to square i think ultimately what needs to happen is more people need to see the regional councils as doing things on their behalf and you only get there through transparency and if cavers at a regional level don't like what their regional council are doing the only way to change that is to get involved and that's the tricky part it's, it's I, I think there's another point here which is that you know i, I live in oxford um i've still got sort of loose association with Oxford university cave club but mainly from you know friends that go back many decades, and and obviously, you know, um, I, I'm not playing an active part in a student club. But you know, what, what's my regional council? I sometimes go caving in the Mendips. I sometimes go to South Wales. I sometimes go to Derbyshire, and I sometimes go to Yorkshire. And um, I'm not actually a member of any club. I, I tend just to claim cave with people I know. Um, I don't feel that any regional council has anything whatsoever to do with me, other than. You know, if, if I do want to have to get a permit in the areas that still require them in Yorkshire, well, you know, I'll go on the CNCC website, but it's got nothing to do with me other than that. Yeah, and th there is a generational change in cavers. Mm. So the younger cavers uh, are seem much less regional because actually where they cut their teeth does tend to be more varied because transport has become cheaper and we've got wonderful caving huts which allow... <laughs> people to stay for very cheap prices really you know when you compare it to everything else um, the reason why people are able to go around the regions is because of all of the facilities that we've got and that's why we need to protect them um, there is a balance to be struck ultimately you want people on the ground to be doing the volunteering uh, 
you want people who are more familiar with the situation, but you also don't want entrenched interest to overrule everyone's interest. And that's kind of where BCA and the regions, you know, begin to butt heads. I think the solution to that is going to be really hard to get to. It's going to take several years. And I suspect if we hold true to transparency and openness and actually make cavers aware in that region what their region says and does, <laughs> I think actually the light of day will wash out most of the problems because ultimately the people that are involved in those regions are kind of involved nationally as well. You know, we are all <laughs> the same. We are all, you know, how many Mendip cavers also cave in South Wales? It's a lot. Uh, it, we're not as um, in our own little boxes as, as, as we often think. Okay, well, that's, that's all the questions I have for now. And we've been going for you know, 40 minutes, and that's <coughs> probably time to wrap it up. So um, thank you very much indeed. And um, uh, well, I shall take a short break and then I will put uh, the same or similar questions to, to Russell. And um, may the best candidate win. Yeah.